Welcome to the Insurance Law Podcast, brought to you by Best Directory of Recommended Insurance Attorneys. Welcome to the Insurance Law Podcast, the broadcast about timely and important legal issues affecting the insurance industry. I'm John Zuba, editor of Best Directory of Recommended Insurance Attorneys. Joining me is Brennan Noonan from our communications team. We're pleased to have with us today attorney Harry Baumgartner from the law firm of Bressler, Amory & Ross, PC in Florham Park, New Jersey. Harry is a member of the firm's insurance law and insurance litigation practice groups. He has over 20 years of legal experience and is also a past senior vice president and general counsel of GAB Robbins. Harry, we're very pleased to have you with us today. Thank you, John. Thank you, Brendan. Today's topic is on insurance issues related to Hurricane Sandy, and Brendan Noonan is going to lead off with our first question. Uh, Harry, can you comment on wind versus flood coverage issues that insurance carriers and property owners will face? Well, the fundamental issue is whether property damage suffered as a result of the storm was caused by wind or water. Homeowners' policies generally exclude coverage for flood damages, and commercial policies also may contain similar exclusions. The question, and it often comes down to an evidentiary one, is what caused the damage at issue? In Hurricane Katrina, for instance, a key definitional issue that was litigated for several years was what constituted a flood under the policy, and in particular, whether a flood that was caused by man-made activity or negligence, for instance, uh, negligently built or maintained levees, was meant to be included or not in the exclusion. The courts there generally upheld the exclusion, given the term its normal dictionary meaning. The second issue is whether or not coverage is available if damage was caused by both a covered peril, say wind, and a non-covered peril, say flood. And this is known in the trade as concurrent causation. The analysis turns on whether the particular policy at issue has what is called an anti-concurrent clause. If it does not contain the clause, the courts can hold in one of three ways. One, that the insurer must respond for the entire loss. Two, they must respond to the entire loss only if the leading or the predominant cause of the loss was due to a covered peril, and that's called the so-called doctrine of efficient proximate cause. Or three, there must be some apportionment between covered and non-covered losses, which can be very difficult from an evidentiary standpoint, particularly in a catastrophic circumstance where a home may be destroyed. New Jersey has taken a slightly different approach, applying what is known as the Appleman's Rule, And that rule finds coverage if a covered loss starts or ends the sequence of events leading to the loss. So you can see that there's a whole menagerie of issues associated with concurrent causation. So to deal with this problem, the insurers began to insert what are called anti-concurrent clauses into their policies several years ago. And these clauses generally exclude coverage whenever one or more excluded perils contributes to a loss, either concurrently or at the same time, with a covered peril, or in some sequence with the covered peril, either before or after. And there are a number of different anti-concurrent clauses that are in use today, and every case will turn its own facts and on the particular policy language at issue. And courts will turn their analysis, as they usually do, on whether or not there is any ambiguity in the language of the clause to determine whether or not there's coverage for the policyholder. What lessons pertaining to coverage or other matters were learned from past hurricanes, such as Katrina and Ike? Well, there were 
are many. One relates directly to the issue that we just talked about. That's the effect of the anti-concurrent clause. The Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, for instance, which covers Mississippi and other states, upheld the clause as a bar to coverage in Mississippi, applying what it thought the Mississippi Supreme Court would rule because the Mississippi Supreme Court had not yet ruled on the effect of the clause. But the Supreme Court of Mississippi in 2009 issued a seminal opinion that found the language in the clause regarding concurrent causation to be ambiguous, particularly with respect to the term in any sequence as it applied to the pearls at issue. And it held that if the insured property was separately damaged by a covered and a non-covered or excluded pearl, then the clause was inapplicable. And the case at issue was sent back for evidentiary hearings and an apportionment analysis. Another lesson, and an important one, was that it's very important for the insurance industry to respond to individual claims promptly, professionally, and compassionately. There were certain companies in Hurricane Ike and Hurricane Rita and Hurricane Katrina, for instance, that put together extremely aggressive and fast-paced programs that were inclusive of comprehensive triage and response systems that included a variety of proactive activities that really went a long way to both avoiding downstream problems and building goodwill generally. And these companies generally also implemented a very comprehensive private mediation system that went a long way to efficiently settling the majority of their claims and, and therefore they didn't get tied up in the court systems down there. From the claims handling perspective, I can't emphasize enough the importance of a comprehensive claim file that fully documents everything, including in particular all communications, oral and written, with the policyholder, and to ensure that all such communications are recorded in a very unbiased and professional manner. You know, ultimately, if a claim is litigated, the claim file is what the jury will see, and they'll see it three or four or maybe five years after the actual event. And what you want the jury to see is a professional, comprehensive, unbiased effort to settle a claim based upon a very reasonable interpretation of policy language and with seasoned and professional supervisory guidance. You know, some of the other common issues from a claims handling perspective that we saw in the recent hurricanes in Louisiana and Mississippi and Texas were these. For one, there were a lot of out-of-state storm adjusters that were sent into those jurisdictions, and they were not fully familiar with local regulations and case law, and they need to be, particularly with respect to the regulatory deadlines for responding to claims. Uh, we also had cases down there where CAT adjusters and catastrophe adjusters were sent in and they were not uh, properly licensed. Most of the states have licensing requirements for adjusters, including catastrophe adjusters, and, and many of the states that were affected by Sandy actually relaxed some of those requirements. So folks need to be familiar with that because it becomes an evidentiary issue in the event that a case is litigated. Again, really need to be familiar with each state's Uniform Claims Practices Act, all of which contain specific deadlines and some of which actually may contain private causes of action against insurance companies that don't 
respond according to the terms of those acts. A very important issue that came out of a lot of the bigger cases in the South was the timely payment of undisputed portions of claims. And again, this was of particular interest for the larger claims. If an insurer knows that a portion of a claim is covered and that another portion of it may be disputed, it is extremely important to pay the undisputed portion of the claim in a timely fashion or at least to provide some form of advance to the insured. With respect to the documentation of each file, another issue that came up in a lot of the cases that were filed in the South related to oral representations, whether or not an adjuster who was on site gave the insured, allegedly, some oral representation that something may or may not have been covered. The insured then alleges that it detrimentally relied upon that oral representation and did this or that with respect to spending money. And it becomes an issue if ultimately that aspect of the claim is denied. Some of the other things that we saw were with the overwhelming volume of claims that the adjusters faced in some of those catastrophes. There were allegations that there were not full or complete adjustments, that they were hasty, that an adjuster came, looked at the house, didn't get the ladder out of his truck, didn't go on the roof, and so on, and that may turn on whether or not the adjuster creates a very comprehensive photographic record of the file. Very important also to have sufficient backup for any disputed amount of a claim. Oftentimes, it comes down to things like a roof, whether or not it needed to be repaired or replaced. If there is an issue with respect to whether or not it needed only to be repaired rather than fully replaced, then it's very important to retain experts that know what they're talking about who generate professional reports to support that claim determination. Some of the other issues that came up in the hurricanes down south that I'm sure will be relevant here are evidentiary issues or proof issues. You know, a lot of these homes were fully destroyed, and their belongings are in the ocean or in the bay. And so it becomes an issue with respect to valuation of contents and things of that nature. And we saw many instances, unfortunately, in the South where there were allegations of fraud with respect to contents that an insured alleged they had purchased, but subsequently it was proven that they were not. So there has to be great care exercised with respect to those types of investigations and the type of communications and the type of uh, documentation that occurs. There are also uh, issues that came out of the South with respect of proof of loss issues and what may or may not constitute a formal proof of loss. Most policies, and, and particularly commercial policies, will require formal certified proof of losses to be filed with the insurance company before there is any obligation to pay claims. However, there were cases in the South, and the Supreme Court of Louisiana actually ruled on one very important case that you know, such type, or such uh, significant formality was not required in the context of the particular case that it handled. And it ruled that notwithstanding the fact that the insured, and this is a very large claim, did not submit a certified formal proof of loss, there was sufficient evidence for the insurance company to pay that claim, and the failure to do so in the eyes of the court constituted a sustainable allegation of bad faith. Some of the other 
things that came out, particularly in the Hurricane Ike scenario, was the use of the appraisal clause in uh, policies and what in property policies. And what the appraisal clause is or does or allows is either the insured or the insurer can invoke essentially a, a mediation, if you will, of an independent arbiter to determine a dispute over the quantum of uh, damages. And sometimes it comes down to the appointment of an arbiter by each side and then the agreement of an umpire in case there's a dispute between the two individually appointed arbiters. And issues that came out of that process were what was the authority of the appraisal panels. Were they only authorized, for instance, to determine quantum of damages, or were they authorized to determine other issues as well, including whether or not coverage even applied. And then the corollary to the appraisal clause scenario, particularly, again, in the Hurricane Ike situation, was how was it ultimately used. If, for instance, an insurer came in with a, let's say, low offer, a settlement offer with respect to a particular aspect of a claim, and then at the end of an appraisal process, the appraisal award was substantially higher than that offer, we found that many of the plaintiffs' counsel in Texas were using the appraisal process as a sword, if you will, in making bad faith allegations against insurers. Another issue that comes up in the context of these types of situations is demand surge, and uh, that is you know, when you have so much destruction and you only have limited resources, whether they are human labor resources in the form of contractors, or supplies, wood, metal, electrical supplies, costs generally go up, and sometimes there are disputes with respect to what is the reasonable cost of construction in the context of demand surge economics. And then, you know, finally, I would point to another issue that adjusters need to be aware of, and that's code coverage and whether or not a particular policy requires the restoration of a property to current code requirements or to pre-existing code requirements. And if not, how does that affect valuation? That often becomes a disputed element in the adjustment of a claim if a policy does not require that a particular property be restored to code. That's the adjustment side of the equation. From the litigation side of the equation, a lot of effort was made in Texas following Hurricane Ike to streamline the litigation process. And notwithstanding whether or not you believe that the claims that were filed there were valid or not, it helped to expedite the process by putting in place standard timelines for cases filed in the aftermath of Hurricane Ike, there were standard discovery forms that were used, uh, collaboration among the various courts with respect to streamlining that process. And I think that was very instrumental in helping to speed the process along. Well, you mentioned the storms of Ike, Katrina, and Rita, and the fact that they occurred in Louisiana, Mississippi, and Texas. How does that impact New Jersey today? What was learned from that? Well, I guess in a couple of ways. You know, there are a lot of lessons learned with respect to how to respond in this day and age to catastrophe claims that we just discussed and best practices that are related thereto. And I think, additionally, there's a fair amount of case law that came out of Louisiana and Texas on a variety of procedural and substantive issues. And while these 
cases, of course, and these decisions are not binding on the courts of New Jersey and New York and Pennsylvania, there's a fair amount of recent decisional law that has developed in those jurisdictions on some key coverage issues, like, for instance, the anti-concurrent clause and the wind versus flood issue. And I think as these types of issues are litigated in New Jersey and New York and Pennsylvania, that lawyers and judges inevitably are going to look to the decisional law in those jurisdictions as guidance. Of course, it's not binding with respect to the intent and impact or import of policy language. And, you know, it's not to say that the result is going to be the same. Every state, as you know, tends to tweak policy interpretation in its own way. But the decisional law out of those jurisdictions, particularly out of the federal courts, and perhaps some of the state Supreme Courts, may be influential or at least serve as a guide to the courts of New Jersey and surrounding states with respect to policy interpretation. Uh, do you expect much government intervention in New Jersey and perhaps the other states, and how will this impact insurers? Well, there's already been a fair amount of intervention. I don't know that there will be much more. I think the principal debate has been over the governments of many states intervening, if you will, with respect to declaring that the hurricane deductible in homeowners' policies could not be applied. And a variety of rationales were used by the governors or the insurance commissioners of those states, depending upon whether or not they had strong regulatory or legislative authority to do so. Uh, for instance, in New Jersey, via the governor's executive order, it was declared that the hurricane deductible could not be applied because the National Hurricane Center downgraded the storm to a tropical cyclone just before it hit the shoreline, and a technical read, I suppose, of the language of the approved hurricane deductible clause permitted the government to take that stance. That initially raised a host of questions as to whether, in fact, the state had the authority to negate the application of the deductible and whether the executive order had a broader reach such that it would apply to commercial policies or to surplus lines or even to policies that contained not the so-called hurricane deductible, but either the named windstorm deductible or the straight windstorm deductible. I think that eventually most insurers decided that they would not challenge the executive order in New Jersey or the orders that were issued in other states, particularly since their losses were likely to pierce reinsurance coverage anyway. But that, in turn, raised its own set of questions with the reinsurers. And it also appears, you know, a month later that at this point, the reach of these orders was only intended for the specifically worded hurricane deductibles and homeowners policies. And insurers are continuing to apply the named windstorm and the normal windstorm deductibles that they have in those policies. And I think, you know, what we are likely to see as we go forward is that insurers will examine policy language as a result of this storm and as a result of the governmental orders and seek to button down this issue such that the hurricane deductible per se might be eliminated ultimately in favor of a straight windstorm deductible, which I should have said earlier, these deductibles apply percentage deductibles anywhere from 2 to 5% of the value of a home before coverage kicks in rather than the straight 500 or $1,000 deductible that 
normally might be in a policy. So it also could be that in addition to seeking clarification or elimination of the hurricane deductible in favor of the straight windstorm type deductible form, that uh, insurers might move to percentage deductibles across the board, regardless of the peril that causes the damage, in order to eliminate the possibility of any regulatory or you know, government uh, fiat, if you will, in the future. Uh, any additional comments on how this game-changing storm might impact the insurance industry, particularly in New Jersey, going forward? Well, I think that it certainly is going to have an impact on pricing, particularly in the coastal areas. It will impact policy forms, as we just discussed, with respect to the hurricane and other deductibles. And I think it will likely trigger, as it inevitably does following any catastrophe, a much broader analysis of insurers with respect to the aggregation of risk and whether or to what extent they may or may not write any particular type of coverage in a geographical region. You know, that in turn could itself have an impact on pricing pursuant to the basic principles of supply and demand, and it might, as it has in Florida, Texas, and elsewhere, trigger an expansion of the market for insurers of last resort. So pricing and forms clearly are going to be analyzed, and how that results ultimately remains to be seen as these losses are assessed and paid. And all of it, of course, tends to be mitigated, as it inevitably is in a lot of these markets, by new entrants or by the expansion of existing underwriters that may view the market as overpriced by the traditional marketplace and therefore worthy of the risk. Harry, thanks very much for joining us today. Thank you. That was Harry Bobgartner from the law firm of Bressler, Amy & Ross, PC, in Florham Park, New Jersey. Special thanks to Brendan Noonan from our communications team and to our producer, Brian Cohen. And thank you all for joining us for the Insurance Law Podcast. To subscribe to this audio program, visit podcast.insuranceattorneysearch.com or go to online directories such as iTunes or Google or Yahoo's podcast directory. If you have any suggestions for a future topic regarding an insurance law case or issue, please email us at lawpodcast.ambest.com. I'm John Zuba, joined by Brendan Noonan, and now this message. Best's directory of recommended insurance attorneys is used by decision makers at insurance companies responsible for selecting legal counsel and representation. The printed directory is distributed annually to insurance companies, non-insurance companies, third-party administrators, and corporate counsel around the world, and the online edition is accessible throughout the year. Your listing in Best's directory of recommended insurance attorneys is the most effective way to ensure that thousands of potential clients have access to your outstanding credentials. Here's why you should be listed in the number one insurance insurance attorney reference. Your firm's credentials will be listed in our comprehensive reference guide, which is made available to thousands of insurance professionals globally, both in print and online. AMBEST listees are recognized as the most qualified in their field to represent the unique needs of insurance companies. Key decision makers rely on the directory to take the guesswork out of their selection process. They know that only the best are listed. Those firms with a proven track record of excellence who are recommended by their insurance industry clients. And remember, one low rate guarantees year long visibility for your firm. We invite you to use our web application process to apply for a listing today. With our reasonable rates and broad exposure, there's no more effective way to get the attention of the insurance industry. For more information about Best's Directory of Recommended Insurance Attorneys, visit www.insuranceattorneysearch.com. 